<sighs> I should have worn my breakup with white Jesus shirt. Shoot. Oh, well. It doesn't have any green on it, so I felt I didn't want to get pinched. I am not wearing any green. My oh, dad my always ring. tells me, growing up in Chicago, you know, like, pe- the Protestants all wore orange. Oh. So, yeah, yeah, there was a lot of pension going on both ways. It was St. Patrick's Day growing up in Chicago and then Chicagoland was always weird because I was like, I don't, I don't get this. Are you Irish? Are you all Irish? <laughs> I'm Irish. And I actually am part Irish, but I don't care about St. Patrick's Day. Yeah, I'm. I'm not. Obviously, I just my mom don't literally is making corned beef tonight. Really? Yeah, she's gonna, gonna go over there and get some corned beef and cabbage. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like cabbage, but not in that way. I eat it once a year. Welcome to the Fascinating Podcast. I'm Matt Michelotis. I'm J.R. Foresteros. And I am Kathy Kong. And on this week's show, we're going to be talking with Andre Henry about his new book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. But before we get to that, what are we talking about? We are holding court. We're holding court. This is the Mm -hmm. first ever fascinating court. Uh, (laughs) I, I... I had a, I guess we'll just call it for now an incident earlier in the week uh, where I was accused of some things that I don't think are fair. And so I wanted to bring it to my fascinating pals uh, for a final judgment. Um, uh, judges, I'm really excited. Judges Michelotis and Kong presiding. Yes, because this is the closest I'll ever get to law school. So somewhere like my parents are <laughs> and like, we, sh- oh. we should say Clay is recovering from knee surgery. He probably didn't want to say that. Clay is on vacation. <laughs> Um, so <laughs> now we have to redo this whole intro. It wasn't knee yeah. surgery. It was he's getting a nose job. Yeah, <laughs> as if Clay needs a nose. He job. was getting on vacation. He was getting new that eyebrows. Roman Schnaz he has. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So here's the deal. You you've heard of Wordle, right? What is Wordle that? Wordle sponsored yes. by the New York Times. Oh, so Wordle. on on March fifteenth, the word was tease. Okay. Spoilers now. Yeah, for a word that you can't play anymore. Uh, I am in several text threads with people who share their Wordle results, and yes. it's also all over the internet, right? Share the yeah. results, so, meaning you can see the little colors of when they got you wrong. You can see the colors, but not the letters. Right. 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 So my wife, uh, first thing in the morning, did Wordle and texted it to one of those groups, and I saw that she got it in two, and that the pattern was her first, the first letter was missing, the middle three were the correct letter in the correct place, and the last one was correct letter, wrong place. And is right? Amanda so like, a same word every time day? She always starts she with the same word. She uses feast or beast nearly every day. Okay? Beast so I was beast. like, oh, interesting. So I did T-E-A-S. And then I was like, oh, I think it has to be T's. So I put in the E, and it turned out I got Wordle in one. So I posted that, and I told people. People were like, that's an interesting starting word. You know, some smells fishy. So I just told everyone. I said, yes. I saw the pattern of someone who I knew their starting word, and so I guessed it that way. And the internet, not everyone, but a few people accused me of cheating at Wordle. What's your start word? I usually use guild. Mm, that's a good one. So you're saying you didn't start starting with your word. start word. I did not, because I saw a pattern so you got it in of two. someone whose start word I knew. 
Sure, that's fine, but or my score three, maybe. I mean, it could have been six. Maybe you didn't even get it, yeah. is the question. But I got it in one, is what I'm saying. The question is, judges, would you say that counts? Uh, that constitutes cheating? No. The, okay, I mean, one. Yeah. <laughs> you only knew three letters out of five? Yeah, that's four. cheating. Oh, you no, only knew, knew four, four letters, out, letters of out of five. I knew that one of them was I mean, in the wrong wordle. place. You were just it, playing woo. Yeah. <laughs> Or maybe so you're saying, yes, sure. Matt, I was cheating. Totally By cheating. I mean, okay. that's some pretty heavy cluing. I'll give you four out of five letters. Can you guess the last But, one? but I didn't, but I didn't seek it out. Based on, yeah, and the whole game is based on clues, right? So it's not like you're not allowed clues. The whole premise of the game is you are you know if you got the right letter in the wrong place or the right letter in the right place. And because it's the internet, everybody's posting their results. So, and people are talking about the best start word. I just, so, Zoe stays no. up till midnight so she can play it at 1201 and not have any spoilers <laughs> or clues. She's a purist. I, I don't. And I, I feel as though, uh, I, I feel as though the game is not designed, like the share function in the game seems like it's built in to be social. Yeah. It's very social. It's it's not cheating, Jr. I don't have a I don't and I also don't have the same start word. Like I don't have people. I don't, don't have a start word. I don't, I don't. I just. I literally. I'm like, eh, what do I feel you ask like the universe? today? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> how I, I do it. Like today, right? I also don't play it very often, but I always. Oh, I play it often, <laughs> and I also play Quartal. I like yes, Quartal. It's the word. Yes. The one with how many words? Is 16. That? 16 words. I love so that good. one. It's so I love good. that one. I did that thousand one once, but it there's started a to feel. thousand one? Oh, yeah. It's ridiculous. And there's double words in it. Like, so you'll oh. solve one sometimes. It's like, yeah, that's in there 16 times. And you're like, oh, great. Yeah, I know that. Um, I do like this the, the 16 one because it doesn't repeat. Yeah. Right, right. The thousand one starts feeling real zen because you're just putting words in and they're like, you got one. <laughs> Forever. And you're like, okay, yeah. cool. What other five letter words can I think of? Fuzzy. All right. Yeah, oh, that's one. Uh, split jury. Well, it sounds like uh, we're a split decision. We'll, we'll need to play mm-hmm. to weigh in on this. Well, yep. Jar, it's not, maybe it's not cheating, but it's not pure. It's dirty. <laughs> that is a dirty win. <laughs> Is it dirty? Why? I don't understand. Like you're you're out there telling people you got it in one. Yeah, because he because you only knew four letters going in. Yeah, good for me, right? I guess. Like, how is that different than me going? Like, say there's a website where someone's like, I always put up my my first guess on my website, and it has four out of the five letters, and I'm like, yeah, I'll check that before I start. But you, you're saying it's not cheating because you didn't do it on purpose. purpose. It was sent to me. Yep. I didn't go looking for it. You're like if you were at a test and someone like accidentally dropped their answer key as they went to turn it in, and you were like, "Oh, the first three answers and are A C E." Then, then what? I just ignore that. That wasn't cheating. I can't rem- I can't remove that data from my head. 
So you're saying you weren't cheating. Someone just told you the answer. <laughs> no, no, yeah. no, no. It would be more like somebody in an open book test or like one of those tests. Cause all my kids had had one test where like you could take an index card with anything written on it. So long as it was all on the index yeah, yeah, card. Yeah, yeah. So that was like the one class my kids learned how to write really neatly and really tiny. Right. right. It's that. I feel like Wordle, because it has that share function, the idea is everybody knows how you're doing it. And again, the additional conversation has been, do you have a consistent start word? And if so, what is it? And why do you think it's the best start word? So it's not like that information isn't out there. It's This is an open book test. That's what it is. I, I get the feeling that uh, Judge Kong has done her share of cheating. I know. Actually, I am usually playing. We reject your definition. Yeah, we reject your definition. And I am like Zoe, not because I don't want to see anything, but because I'm up later than I should. And I am like, well, I'll just do this and go to sleep. Like that is my like, this is my, this is my end of the night treat. Yeah. I'm going to. And then I'm like, and then I'm going to turn my phone off and go to bed. I'm going to tell you the truth. My actual answer, like I like harassing JR. My actual answer (laughs) is I don't care what you do on Wordle as long (laughs) as it's bringing you some sort of joy in this time. And I think that is what Wordle is designed for. Yeah. Here's my thing. I'm a very competitive person. Like really, I know you didn't know that, Hmm. but it's true. And so it really irritates me when people accuse me of cheating because to me, any any idiot can win by cheating. That that doesn't prove anything. Um, like I'm too competitive to cheat, if that makes sense. Mm. Like cheating spoils the delight the of joy. the victory. Because yes. it's not a it's not a real victory. Yes. So so who cares at that point? Right. Why are you laughing, Matt? <laughs> Matt. I mean, I don't know. I think cheating still makes it fun to win. No, not at all. <laughs> Nope. It, spo- it, it spoils it. So, all right. Well, listeners, we would love to know uh, if you think I'm a cheater or not. And we'll have to wait until Clay returns uh, to get a follow-up ruling. I guess we're appealing to a higher court, the the full panel of fascinating judges. Uh, if you have an issue you would like us to settle a fascinating court, you can also submit that to us via messenger at facebook.com slash the fascinating podcast or on Twitter with the hashtag fascinating. Um, but for now, crazy ones. I can feel it. I can't wait. I, I'm here for it. I'll settle them all. Um, for now, we need to turn to our guest, Andre Henry. Andre is a good friend of the show. Uh, he was actually on for our Game of Thrones review and oh, yeah. participated in our social justice and the gospel panel. He is an activist, an artist, a musician. Uh, he is just an incredible voice for uh, social change. And his new book, as Kathy mentioned, is called All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. It is it is just a staggeringly good book. And listeners will know that I'm excited because I've promised that this episode was coming next week in like four previous episodes because I just kept, I was just so excited to get to it. I just kept forgetting it wasn't the next week, but it's really here. We've actually already done the interview and it's great. Yeah. So and, without uh, any further ado. FYI, everyone, okay. next week we're having Andre again. <laughs> it's just the Andre, we just interview Andre every week now. So um, yeah. So uh, without any further ado, let's turn over to our interview with Andre Henry. Our guest today is author, activist, archivist, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, Andre Henry. Welcome back to the show, Andre. It's such an honor to have you back. 
Thanks for having me. Uh, it has been a while. We've had a whole global pandemic since you've been on. So <laughs> would love to hear what is, you know, fascinating you these days? Like what's keeping your interest peaked? Oh, man. I should have thought about this. <laughs> I forgot. I forgot that you asked this question. What is fascinating me lately? What are you What are you listening to, Andre? I know you're a musician. Oh. You always have good music. Oh suggestions. my gosh! Okay, I think this actually counts though because, <clears throat> like, lately I've been listening a lot to a DJ called K Tronada. I don't know if you all have heard of K Tronada. No. But um, Kate Tronada makes this very soulful, four on the floor dance music. That, but it's not like epic, like club dance music. It's uh-huh. like just very vibey, like it makes you want to move kind of music with these interesting synths and stuff. And I've been listening like, I'm into sound design sometimes, not just like for fun. Like I don't just like wake up and like, I'm going to design a sound today. But, <laughs> <laughs> but when I hear synths that I think are really interesting, I may want to put that in one of my songs and then I'll spend like, I will spend a whole, okay, for instance, short story. My, I, a couple years ago in 2020, I released a song called How Long. And in the, the midsection of How Long is this future bass dance break with a guitar solo over it. Mm-hmm. I spent five days creating those synths from scratch, designing them. Wow. Watching YouTube videos to figure out like, how to do it and all that kind of stuff. And when I finally did it, I was like a mad scientist. It was like, I just made Frankenstein come to life. Like, and my friend was having to sit there. He was recording me at the time, like it was a great time because I jumped up out of my chair with my hands in the air and I'm like, it's <laughs> alive. <laughs> <laughs> or like Dexter's lab, my base creation, creation is completed. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. One more, but one more on the music side. Billy Joel is fascinating me right now because I feel like Billy Joel got away with. I don't understand how Billy Joel is walking the streets a free man right now for what he did. You know, all this harmonic rule breaking that he's done his entire career. I tr- because I played Uptown Girl on the piano and I was like, oh, this sounds like a little ditty that stays in the same key the whole time. It doesn't. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yes, Billy Joel. I'm listening. I'm playing Uptown Girl on the piano. It starts in E and it starts in E so confidently. E, E, E. We are in the major key. E, E, E. We're going to stay here the whole damn song. We're going to stay in E all day long. Right? Sounds like that. But then, like, he goes to C major. And I know people who aren't music theorists don't understand what I'm saying. But all you need to know is that these two keys have nothing to do with yeah. each other. <laughs> they have nothing to do with each other. And he got there so simply. Like, you think you're just singing higher, right? Mm-hmm. And da, da, da. Then he goes, he's in A major now. Just because I'm in love. Well, it goes from B major to B minor with an uptown girl back to E. And I, every time I hear it, I get so mad. Now I'm going to have to listen to it. And I like, you should hear, like, it's going to, it's going to get to this point where we're like, we're going to be at parties and someone's going to be like, Hey, just go over there and mention Billy Joel to Andre. <laughs> just put, just put Uptown Girl on, on the playlist. Yeah, watch him and just watch him. Literally, literally like uncontrollably, I, I get up, I start pacing, I start walking, like shaking my <laughs> fist. And I'm like, I think Billy Joel is like, he talks real disrespectfully to his piano. Like before he starts playing, he's like, 
we are about to go places that we shouldn't. <laughs> We're going to break all kinds of rules of common harmonic practice. You know why? Because I'm motherfucking Billy Joel. <laughs> and I can do that. It's amazing. Yeah. So that's what's fascinating me lately. I love awesome. it. <laughs> wow. Billy Joel. So obviously we brought you on because uh, we can't wait to talk about your book. And I, some of our listeners who maybe foolishly don't follow you as closely as we do uh, may not may not know as much because uh, you you've been on your social media you, you've kind of been I, I thought pretty open with the process of writing this is something you've been working on for a long time but I always yeah. love to hear authors talk about like the the sort of the biography of the book like like when did you decide I must write. A book instead of you know you've but you're a podcaster you're a songwriter you have a, a really uh-huh. terrific newsletter right you have all these media you already create so like when when was it like this this must be a book and uh, a book that's so personal because I feel like you could have yeah. written a lot about anti racism activism and stuff like that but you really chose to go as we were talking about before the show like really really personal and vulnerable with this right so. I have wanted to write a book for a long time. Like I've I've wanted to write a book for years, 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 years. But I thought that my first <laughs> I thought my first book would be like about theology or something when I was like a seminarian and uh, you know, thinking I might teach theology someday. So I thought that if I ever wrote a book, it would probably have something to do with <clears throat> understanding, you know, the the gospel for some other perspective or whatever. And then like, I lost all interest in doing public theology uh, during the Black Lives Matter movement because mm. the sense in which I thought of doing public theology just didn't seem relevant to that struggle. So I started making, well, first off, the big change happened after I watched Philando Castile die. And up to then I've been making R&B music, mostly love songs, sometimes about social justice here and there, but mostly love songs. And in the wake of that death, I was like, I got to do something. I got to use what I have to make a difference. And I started writing songs about social justice. You know, like some some people are familiar with some of my music playing hooky, and to be this way, how long, you know, those kinds of songs came out of that season. And um, <laughs> the other thing I started doing around that time was going live on Facebook every single day because I felt like there were a lot of white people in my in my life that I went to church with or went to school with, you know, growing up or in college or something. And I thought, well, you know, I have experienced racism because they were all like, how do we know that racism was involved in this, you know, death and all this kind of stuff. So I'm like, well, I've experienced racism. So I'll go online and I'll tell them that, you know, hey, this is a real thing because I've experienced it. Because <laughs> naive Andre thought, if I just tell you what I experienced, right, you're going to find that hard to argue with. Wait, <laughs> Little it, it- did. It didn't work, Andre. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) My God, it didn't. Um, It did not work at all. And so anyway, that's what I started doing. And so I did that for like, not every day for uh, for a year or or so, a year or more. But I did it um, every day in the beginning and then over the course of a year or so. Um, I would go on Facebook often, you know, and just talk about what was going on in the news, what was going on in the world, all that kind of thing. And... There came one day when I realized, like, these guys really just think I'm just some guy sitting at my kitchen table, like, rambling, which I was. But (laughs) I was like, if I'm going to keep doing that, (laughs) then it needs to be more than that. Like, it needs to be more than me just, like, you know, me in my laptop, kind of, like, just 
going, right? Mm-hmm. And so I started thinking like, how can I make this more into like something that feels more legitimate, you know? Even though like it was totally legit for me to just sit there and tell my story. But at the time I was like, how can I make this feel more, give it more gravitas? And that's when I started the email list and eventually turned to the podcast and all that kind of stuff. And I actually didn't decide to turn it into a book. A literary agent, I don't know when he started following me, but he was following me at some point. And then I wrote a blog in 2019, I think it was, that was an open letter to all the white friends I couldn't keep. Mm-hmm. Because I had a bunch of white folks that, you know, the folks I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. who were online saying, oh, Andre's a racist and he hates white people and all this kind of stuff. You know, through that process I was telling you about where I started the email list, I started the podcast, all that kind of stuff. And they're like, oh, like now Andre's like a, a black supremacist celebrity or something like that. Right. I don't mm-hmm. know. So. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, first off, you can't run around the internet saying that I hate white people. If you don't have a receipt, show me the screenshot of the text message, the blog, the tweet, whatever it is where I ever said that. You can't find it because I never said it. So I'm going to write you a receipt of my love for you. And I wrote them this open letter called To All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, in which I explained the reason why we don't talk anymore is not because I just mysteriously woke up with hatred for white people in my heart, but... (laughs) Because I tried to invite you into the struggle to make this world safer for people like me. And you told me that I was delusional. I was a race baiter. I was a reverse racist. All these other kind of things. And it's untenable. It is untenable for us to have a close relationship. uh, And for you to tell me that racism is not real. Or, you know, some... Some, uh, many of them are white Christians, but you know, some even would go as far as to say racism is not important to God, right? So, literary agent is following me, and this blog goes viral, which, by the way, I say this every time, be careful, everyone, proofread your stuff, you never know which one's gonna go viral, because I wrote that one in a fit of rage and just hit send, like an angry text message, (laughs) and I had to keep going back and correcting things. So, (laughs) um... So this, <laughs> so this blog goes viral and a literary agent reached out, reaches out to me and tells me that he feels like there's a book in it. And I'm like, well, I don't know how this could be a book, but you sell books for a living. So I'm going to listen to you. Well, actually, that's not the first thing I said. I didn't say this to him, but the first thing I said in my head was, do literary agents reach out to people like this? Because this seems like a scam. Yep. And I don't think I'm going to answer this email. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Thank God I didn't respond. Nice try, scammer. (laughs) 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 Because that was, I was tempted to do that. Um, But I didn't. I, you know, I gave gave him a chance. And then that's kind of how the book came about. But the one thing I want to say about that is, I thought that I was going to expand that open letter into the book. I thought that's what the book was going to be. But by the time I finished the book proposal, which it took me, I think, a year or so to do the book proposal. I had to keep rewriting it because I'd never written a book before and it was terrible. So, um, uh, or at least like my sample chapters were like not, not the way you want to structure things. Um, I realized that I didn't want to write a whole book where I was addressing the same people who weren't listening to me in the first place. So I decided to change the angle <laughs> That's why the two in the name of the book is no longer there, right? Like it, the blog was to all the white friends I couldn't keep. The book is all the white friends I couldn't keep. It's because I decided that I wanted to write the book that I wish that I had had 
when I was doing that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, to say to my younger self, two things. One, uh, stop trying to move these people who aren't movable. Um, and two, there actually is a way that we can fight for justice and win. And it's not the way that all these people are telling you. Because since between the time that I wrote the letter, or no, not even between the time. Yeah, by the time I'd written the letter, um, I had already gone on like a serious intellectual quest to understand like how does nonviolent struggle work? Why did social movements in the past work? So the book really is writing to people who are in that place that I was before I went on that journey to say, these people are distracting you. Mm. <laughs> there is a movement to build and uh, we need to you, you just divert your attention away from these people who are trying to tell you that the problem doesn't exist. And let's get into these people who know the problem exists and know uh, how to fight things like this. That's really great. Hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, your book is amazing, by the way, and those who are listening who haven't picked it up yet. Uh, Andre does this amazing thing where he takes these really personal stories from his life and then he pulls out of that different things that he's learning and how it's shaping his life. And uh, I, I mean, it's, it's actually really beautiful. It's a wonderful way to sit in. And I just feel like as I'm reading, I'm like, oh, I feel like Andre is being so generous with himself uh, and that he is without, without being, uh, it doesn't feel like someone's lecturing you at all. It feels like you're learning alongside him uh, in this really beautiful way. Um, one of the things you talked about was this moment when you were at seminary and you talk about Philando Castile, right? And kind of how that leads to a variety of changes and what you want to do with your life. Yeah. Uh, and then you talk about, you have this moment, this like <laughs> mystical experience, like you have a vision. Uh, can you tell us a little bit oh, about man. that? And like, how, you were at a seminary and is that weird yeah. to walk in and say like, guess what? I had a vision. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Like, what, tell us a little about well, that. It's especially weird, like, when you're not sure that you believe in God anymore. Mm. Um, and then, like, you have, like, this mystical experience and you don't really know where to place it. Because at the time, like, I considered myself, like, just, like, a materialist. Because, you know, all the churches and all the Christians that I knew were, like, well, not all, but the Christians right. that I grew up with and a lot of the churches that I was connected to were, like, refusing to be involved with this movement at all. And it just made me like, well, it seems like they all have all these religious and theological reasons why they're not doing this. So maybe like, <clears throat> you know, the Christians are like, God is on the throne and the non-Christian spiritual people are like, love and light. And so I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> forget, <laughs> forget all you spiritualists. You know, <laughs> I just want to deal with what will make black people free. And this was, you know, sh shortly after the death of Philando Castile, the killing of Philando Castile. And uh, three weeks later, you know, I'm sitting on my couch over a plate of leftovers, chicken carbonara to be exact, my favorite thing to make. I'm very good at it. Oh, one of these days, I'm going to find a way to cook for all the people I love. Because, <laughs> uh, um, and so I'm sitting over these leftover chicken carbonara, this leftover chicken carbonara. And the next thing you know, I'm like in this kind of dream state, but I'm awake. Yeah. Like, I'm awake, I'm asleep at the same time. And in this vision, I always get weird about this. Some people tell me I should stop being weird about it, but I do feel weird about it, <laughs> you know? Um, but anyway, this is what happened. So I'm, I'm in the vision, I'm walking 
uh, by a park in old Pasadena, which is like the downtown district of Pasadena. And from inside, I hear a street preacher uh, speaking. And I just, I don't like street preachers, you know, but I'm always curious about them. Just like, because I'm just like, first off, it's kind of like, it's kind of like seeing somebody like skating down the sidewalk in huge bell bottoms and an afro with a boombox on their shoulder. You're like, people still doing that? You know, like, <laughs> wow, like, what an anachronism. Time travel is real, right? So I'm like, anyway, but I'm always curious about them. So I stop. I usually listen to them. Sometimes I might ask them a question or something. And I always imagine myself like <clears throat> in this street preacher showdown with like, the hateful street preacher and me with actual good news, but I've never actually done it. So anyway, I hear the street preacher coming from the park or the street preacher's voice coming from the park. I walk into the park to see what's going on as it's true to my character to possibly ask him a question or challenge him to a street preacher showdown. And when I get close enough, I'm looking at the street preacher and the street preacher is me. And I am standing in front of myself watching myself in the park next to a large white boulder with all of these racial injustices written on it. And I'm quoting like whole passages from like Isaiah and Revelation um, about like a world that doesn't have racism. And then I come back to my senses sitting in, in my living room again over this plate of chicken carbonara and I'm crying and tears are just like falling into my leftovers. I'm not gonna eat that now. Um, and um, I'm crying because I feel like I'm supposed to do this thing. You know, I'm, I'm, I need, I'm feeling compelled to do it. I can't say like in the moment, like I believe that it's God or whatever. All I know is that I, I feel I need to do this. So by the end of the night, I had a boulder in my possession, a hundred pound boulder in my possession, a wagon from Home Depot, a car from Home Depot. And for the next six months, I, you know, lugged that stone around with me. Well, four months, I lugged it with me everywhere. Job interviews, class dinner with friends. I almost took it on a date, but then she came over and I cooked. Um, so I didn't have to take it there. Um, but you know, just everywhere I went. And then for the last couple months, someone asked me like, who do you feel like really needs to see this? And at the time I was playing the piano at so many different churches. I felt like it, this, that's where I need to take it. So I only took it to church for like the last two months. I, I, I loved that story in the book. And I, I don't know, like I just got such strong, uh, like honestly, Jeremiah vibes, like the reluctant prophet that God sort of drags kicking and screaming into prophecy. And in, in some ways that's how, uh, that's how I've experienced your, your work. You know, like, I think there's so much of your message that you've been like, yeah, I wish I didn't have to say this, but yeah. black people are still dying. And so, yeah, I, you know, I have to, and yeah. I, I don't know, like it was just, um, I thought it was a beautiful story and really a profound experience, uh, particularly when you did, when you described the, uh, the effects that it had on your seminary circles, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, again, I don't want to spoil everything because I know our, our listeners are going to read the book, <laughs> but I just, it was, it was such a power, it was such a powerful thing. And, you know, and I, I, you know, we, we, I think we've talked about, uh, the, the season of the boulder in your life before. And I've read, I've read yes. some of the stuff you've written about it, but I had never heard the kind of the, the call part of it there. So I, I, I was just really, moved. Yeah. I thought it was a really, just a profound, yeah. a profound thing to, to kind of get to walk through with you there. Yeah. I really appreciate that. You know, um, 
Gosh, uh, I always have liked the prophets, you know, mm. the, the Hebrew prophets. So I've, I've always liked them. Um, I think there's a reason why no one in the Bible wants to be a prophet. <laughs> um, they they kind of understand, like, I mean, they're not being they're not being asked to do something easy, right? Like when when Moses is called to go speak to Pharaoh, it's like you are you are sentencing me to death right now. Like I'm going to go stand in front of you know this this one of the most powerful men in the world and tell them what to do, you know? And, um, and Jeremiah is an interesting one because we know the most personally about Jeremiah, right? Like it's the most about, at least of the major, major minor prophets there. Like we know we have the most personal information about Jeremiah and, um, God tells Jeremiah, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to make you like a, I can't remember. I haven't read Jeremiah so long. uh, but he's, you know, I'm gonna make you like a fortress. I don't remember what it is, but something like I'm gonna put these walls up around you. And the first time that Jeremiah ever preaches, he gets beat beat up by another priest <laughs> <laughs> and put in the stocks, which is like not funny. So sorry, Jeremiah. If I ever see you, please forgive me for laughing at this, for laughing at your trauma. He's he's had um, worse. He's had worse. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, he has a very honest conversation with God after it. So I mean, uh, anyway, they they have they've always been appealing to me and to to this day i feel like they're the most compelling part of you know christianity to me um and that's what i really wanted to do you know uh with at the time i was really committed to trying to get other people who were mostly christian in my circle to do what i thought was like be true to this these texts that we have right like and what does the lord require of you but to uh walk walk humbly with your God and love mercy and act justly, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I find it so interesting, especially as we're talking about you being in seminary at the time mm-hmm. and Christian circles that um, I, I remember a conversation I had with my spiritual director many years ago and kind of wrestling over that sense of prophetic call, which for you, that experience was exactly that, this this call mm-hmm. and how folks I just I just knew so many folks who wanted that. Yeah. They wanted that. And I was like, no, I don't I don't want that. Yeah. Um and my spiritual director saying, why? And I was like, because none of them are happy. Right. Right? Right. The prophets are not happy people. They are lonely. Yeah. They curl up in a fetal position under trees and say they want to die. Yes. I, I don't, I don't want that. I already yeah. have those tendencies mm-hmm. in my brain. I don't, I'm not chasing after that, right. which is so interesting because of who you are and the work that you do, the public prophetic call mm-hmm. um, is also something that I think, folks who don't really know aspire to. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, when I was younger, I mean, I grew up in the sense of God, right? So mm-hmm. like charismatic denomination, speaking in tongues, prophecy, those are the big things. And I remember um, accepting a challenge as a teenager to read through the Bible in a year, right? Yeah. And I remember after school, going home, sitting in my bedroom, you know, reading read through the Bible. The first part was kind of good, you know. Exodus was super hard to get through, second half, because there's a lot of, like, you know, little instructions, you know, but when I got to the prophets, I did not understand at all what was going on. But all I knew, these guys, cranky. 
<laughs> don't, don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. These guys are not very happy, mm-hmm. right? But I do remember like meeting Ezekiel and feeling like Ezekiel has some fun, has some fun adventures, all these visions and stuff like that. That sounds kind of cool. And then like going through like college and churches and stuff like that. Yeah, everybody is saying that they're a prophet. Everybody is, you know. Um, wanting to to do that, and it seemed like really what they wanted was spiritual clout, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. they they want to be able to say things to people and for people to take them seriously. <laughs> Apparently, they didn't read the prophets. I was going to say this <laughs> <is> really <laughs> happen. You know? Often, not at all. <laughs> yeah, and and ancient traditions outside of Christianity tell us this too, right? So, like when I think of when I think of uh, prophets. I think of Cassandra from mm-hmm. you know from Greek uh, mythology. Is it? I think I think it's mythology. Yeah. Um, so you know Cassandra is a prophet and is cursed, <laughs> like is cursed by the gods that no one will listen to her, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that like what what these ancient traditions are telling us is that truth tellers in general are often not listened to, are often rejected, right? And are often, you know, um, ostracized, marginalized, all that kind of stuff. Oh my gosh, I did not want to carry that boulder. You know, I'm like <laughs> sitting there, like, because I'm like, I'm going to look like I'm out of my mind, you sure. know? And the truth is, like, it wasn't like I, it wasn't like I lugged this boulder into you know, into church and everyone said, I get it. I repent. (laughs) Like nobody said anything, you know, for the most part, nobody said anything. Well, they just politely ignored it for the most part. And, and mind you, I was going to church because I was playing the piano on stage. I was leading worship (laughs) at different places. Did you take it up on the stage? I did. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I lugged the boulder on stage at churches and sat it right next to the piano. Sometimes I was leading worship and I lugged this boulder on the stage. I put it right next to the piano where I'm leading worship and I was yeah. playing the piano singing, you know, our God, a mighty warrior, you're a consuming fire in victory. You reign. We triumph in your name. And I'm wondering what are these white people thinking about when we sing these lyrics? I mean, thank God <laughs> white people in churches don't ignore racism the way they ignored your boulder, right? Ah, but, oh, no. <laughs> Which is the point, right, JR, is that, yeah. like, doing this symbolic action did kind of unveil the dynamics that are already there. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <sighs> oh, man. So in that, uh, in that same story, you start telling us, I don't know if you want to tell the whole story or people can read it in the book for sure but you were talking about this guy kevin who was one of your close friends who's white kevin yeah and he's he's your good friend and you go out of your way to like say kind things about him and how he was like with you in hard times and all these things and then also he's a mess um yeah that when you started having conversations about race uh and i don't know if that did that start with the boulder that started with philando castile maybe yeah, it started with Palano Castillo. So I do want to comment on that, you know, like how I how I portray some people yeah. or everyone in the book, really. I try. Like, I don't want to paint myself as like this perfect victim and I don't want to paint everyone as anyone else as a pure asshole, right? Like no. we're, there's there's a mix of both, right? Yes. And that was important to me yeah. to to show 
you know, because I mean, there are stories in which Andre Henry was the asshole in, <laughs> in that story, right? Like, sure. And I, I hope that someone's as gracious to me as I've tried to be to the white person I couldn't keep. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, Kevin yeah. was a really good friend, mm. you know, and Kevin was there for me in some really hard times, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I feel like it was important to show like how how someone's formation in whiteness can cause them to do things that they might not otherwise do if they were just thinking like about human decency, mm-hmm. human kindness, mm-hmm. right? Because there was a wall that went up when I tried to talk to Kevin about what I was experiencing in this world as a black man, right? Mm-hmm. And I had never really, I never hit that wall that hard before. Like, mm. I, I, first off, most of these walls I never ran into at all, mm. you know, until that season when, you know, all my white friends were discovering that I am, in fact, black. What? <laughs> yeah, oh, you know, and I know it, right? right. I, I, I know that I'm black and I know what that means in this society. And then, um, you know, that was really hard for Kevin to, you know, kind of double down Mm -hmm. on this idea that he can't condemn slavery wholesale, you know, Um, that there was all this, you know, intellectualization and... There were, there were some good slave owners who took care of their slaves. And, right. Yeah. 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 And the crazy thing is that, like, he's repeating something. He's repeating a lie that was invented by slaveholders right. centuries right. before he ever existed. And he doesn't even know it. Right. And yeah, you know that Kevin is one of those that like. So I read my book several times, right, in the course of writing it, reviewing it, editing it. And every time I got to Kevin's story all over again, I'm like, "Mm, you know, (laughs) shaking my fist, you know. I was having feelings when I was reading it. I was like, I don't even know this guy. (laughs) Well, and I think for me, the, the thing that really felt like the gut punch was where you articulated the realization that like what whatever the whatever the relationship would most accurately be defined as it it stops short of seeing you as who you fully are mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know and you're saying you're saying like how can i how can i be friends with someone who can't immediately and unequivocally deny that it's okay maybe to own me. Right. That was my thing. Like I would, I, one of my friends told me he was actually the drummer in my band at the time. I can't remember which death we had seen, but he, Mm -hmm. he just told me, he said, you know, like, I don't think that he ever was like, Oh, you know, like those kids should just pull their pants up and they'd be safe. Like, I don't think he was ever one of those people, Mm -hmm. but he did say that like, what really broke his heart was he realized that that could be me one day, Mm. you know, like that what broke his heart most or what sat with him most was that when he sees these things that he's like, that could have been my friend Andre, you know? Mm. And so when I, in that story with Kevin, like that's the thing that doesn't happen, right? When he's Mm -hmm. talking about, well, you know, I can't condemn slavery wholesale because there might've been some good slave masters. So I'm like, so you would be fine if I was someone's property 
as long as you felt like they were kind to me. Hmm. Hmm. But I, I don't think that, I think that honestly what happens a lot of times in these in those kinds of conversations is that people are really not willing to think through what they're saying, right? So I don't think that Kevin was even willing to cross that bridge and to really think about the implications of what he was saying. You know, I think he was really just trying to shut down the conversation. And that's a huge theme throughout the book, right? Is like, right. I realized that I think in chapter two, like, oh, these people are just trying to shut, they're trying to undermine the conversation entirely just so that we don't have it. Right, right. You know, I won't tell the story, but I will say at the end of that chapter, I think it, it was chapter five. I think so. Um, what I left with was this sense of how you had right up until the last minute still had hope. Right. Right. Yeah. And, um, and as we are recording, um, yesterday was the one year anniversary of the shootings in Atlanta Mm-hmm. And um, when I read that story, um, I, I really appreciated, and readers, I hope you do too, how you left it. Mm. Um, because uh, I also feel like you do you do the readers a great service in not mm. wrapping everything up with a bow. Yeah. Um, and, and even, you know, there's the stories you share are not all wrapped up with a bow and, but they're honest and they're real and, and, and that you still, even to that, to that, as you were leading up to that story, you still had hope, right? You're still inviting yeah. Kevin and not just Kevin specifically, but others into right. conversation. And I think really hope readers understand and see that not just in you, but in others, mm-hmm. in their other black friends, yeah. that there has been a generosity <laughs> and a hopefulness and a willingness mm-hmm. to hope when yeah. there really isn't a whole lot. Oh yes, I mean, real talk. My therapist and I are re- were recently just talking about like the thing that's killing me is relentless hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> <sighs> right? that's real. Because, that's real. Yeah, because like. <laughs> You know, you are you are extending yourself to people mm-hmm. who are never going to come around. Yep. They're never going to come around. Yep. Right. And um, I didn't make this connection until, you know, recently in another interview, like I over a decade ago, I was like in an abusive relationship. And I remember trying to convince this person now again. When we say abuser, sometimes people have this good, bad binary where it's like, oh, this person was abusive. That means that they are, you know, I, this person had grown up in a very traumatic situation and didn't know how to handle their anger and they took it out on me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but they're not a bad person, you know, they were just abusive to me, <laughs> you know, it was an abusive mm-hmm. dynamic in the relationship. So I remember trying to explain to this person, like, what it feels like when they put me down, when they're upset, when they mm-hmm. talk to me any old way that they want, when they unleash on me, when they curse at me, all this kind of stuff. So I literally took some construction paper, some white construction paper and some crayons, and I wrote them a children's book. And I drew them pictures and I illustrated. And one of them, I remember this one. I don't remember all the illustrations, but one of those illustrations, you remember there's this story, 
I should really read the Bible again. Um, the, the, this, there's this story where the high priest is standing between Satan and something else, and um, or I think it was Gabriel. The I think it's Satan and Gabriel standing on both sides, and Gabriel looks at Satan and says, "The Lord rebukes you." Right. So this was kind of the image that's in my head, and I drew myself, and I drew the devil standing over me, and I was saying, like, when you say those things to me, it sounds like you are emphasizing the things that I all the lies that are already being spoken over me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The destructive things that are already being spoken over, and I drew it out, right? So that's the kind of person that I would. That's the kind of person like that's what I thought love is, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm gonna. I'm going to overextend myself to try to explain this to you. Da, 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 da. I'm going to give you this children's book. You're going to read it and go, you're right. And then right. we're going to be fine. You're going to, you're going to see it and you're going to wake up and it's going to be like the end of beauty and the beast or something. Right. Like, right. Like, it's no, beautiful. Right. Right. Also a so, messed up story, but very messed up. Right. <laughs> um, so how is this different from me dragging a boulder around so that white people will get it? You see? Uh-huh. So, like I didn't make that yeah. connection until I was in another interview and I was talking about it like, oh my gosh, like that is the type of, and so that's what I mean. Like this relentless hope, Yeah. it can kill you because yeah. you, <laughs> you know, as a, especially I think as people of color and black people, like we are given this idea that if we just keep believing that white people will do different, if we just keep mm-hmm. bending over backwards in some way, if we find the right way to say it, if mm-hmm. we find the right contortion of our own dignity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Andre is right. in in another way, I in another way I said, like, you know, like, um, it's like in some ways, white people even ask for it when they're like telling us that we should, that they shouldn't be able to perceive that we're angry. And, you know, when they, you, they, they accuse us of riot, rioting and terrorism and all this kind of stuff for protests, it's like what they want to see is us turn the other cheek. But really, when you say that or you imply that in any way, you're saying that you want to see us get slapped. You want to watch us be crucified mm-hmm. so that you might have the chance to have that redemptive experience of looking at our bodies on those crosses and saying, and he too was a son of God. Mm-hmm. And what will it do? Right. What will that suffering do? And I'm getting really passionate. I'm standing on my soapbox right now. Oh, you know, but it's like, I'm just like, that is. So, so <sighs> piece of that, Andre, you're taking, responsi- you're taking responsibility for the transformation of these folks. Is that, is that, and it's yes. not your responsibility. Exactly. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a wonder. I know this isn't going to air on St. Patrick's Day, but like this is what I think about on St. Patrick's Day all the time, because St. Patrick's story or one one. I don't know if you want to call it tradition or legend or whatever, is that St. Patrick had a vision because he escaped from slavery and yep. he had a vision of, I think, an angel or God telling him to go back yep. and to save his oppressors. Right. Yep. To evangelize his oppressors. Right. And that is what people are asking black people to do all the time. Right. And no matter what we say, like when people hear me being fed up or angry or being very direct and very like black and white about this and saying like, nah, I ain't doing that. You know, like I've had people, you know, after I lecture in a school say, well, he seems bitter. His heart seems closed. Yes. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's like, well, you haven't experienced this. You don't know from experience that there's some people, no matter what you do, you can draw them a coloring book. You can walk around town with a hundred pound boulder for six months, you know, uh, you can, whatever you do, it's not going to change anything. Right. You know? Right. You can change your tone, but it won't change their reception of it. 
Right, because no matter what, if they don't think black people are people, it doesn't mean if you yell, it doesn't matter if you yell it in their face Mm -hmm. or if you whisper it quietly as you're walking away. They don't agree with you, right? right? And so the, the longer that we spend doing that, you know, trying to get people to listen to us is the less time that we have to deal with the way that colonization has harmed us, the wound that is in us as black and brown people from colonization and from being able to organize, you know, our own interventions against the way that colonization has and continues to wound our communities and us as individuals, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's like what, that's a huge part of this book is me getting that lesson that like, the more that I argue with Kevin, (laughs) is the less time I have to organize with Kathy. Yes, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and you you write about that, right? You the the claim um, in the chapter titled "We Don't Debate with Racists" mm-hmm. um, that the job of activists is not to convince racists and white supremacists Ooh. that they're wrong. So, yes. and then, and where did you learn this from? So I learned this when I when I started uh, reading about social movements, mm-hmm. right? So Daniel Hunter has a wonderful short book called Building a Movement to End the New Jim Crow. And that was the first time that I heard about a framework called the Spectrum of Allies. Because before I thought, you know, there's two types of people. There's there's racist mm-hmm. and there's anti-racist, right? Mm-hmm. And I know some people, well, sorry, I guess that is kind of true, but I thought there were people who are for, <laughs> there are people who are for this cause and there are people who are against this cause. Mm-hmm. But that's not really how it works in society. You have people who have a number of positions And some of those are, you know, your active opposers, passive opposers. But then you have people who are neutral. You know, they feel like they don't really know, like they're they haven't really landed one way or the other. And they they need more information so they can make a decision. And they're much easier to move Mm -hmm. than people like I write about, like the Kevins and the Mm -hmm. Sherry's and all those. They're much easier to move. And they're active. So there are passive supporters, too. There are people who totally agree with you. Right but they don't know what to do or they haven't taken action and all they need are all they need are marching orders yes (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah that was such a huge light bulb for me um reading the book because so i'm i'm uh you know a little bit behind the curve from from you and kathy especially but you know i was the uh i was the nice white racist who, who didn't realize i was racist uh, and you know, for me, it was Michael Brown, and then uh, Charlottesville was really where the big one for me, um, <sighs> where I yeah. started really realizing, like, oh, uh, it turns out I might not be an expert on this, uh, mm. and you know, so that was when I started. I basically, I basically like quit talking about all of it for a couple of years because I was like, oh, I don't actually know anything. Okay, I need to like mm. immerse myself in. Uh, the voices of people of color to like, you know, learn instead of posturing myself as, as, uh, you know, an expert. And then after a while I decided to start wading back in and arguing with my, my, my people, right. The white men mm-hmm. and try, and, and I was doing the same thing. I was like, Oh, like what they say is that they just need to be convinced. So now I have the receipts. Like I went and found the receipts. Mm-hmm. So I'll just show them that that's what they keep asking for. Yeah. And what I kept <laughs> oh, real bad. Yeah, I mean, real bad. I, I mean, and it was it was kind of like, oh, now I now I am at the very beginning of understanding what you know, BIPOC folks have been 
saying for so long. I'm like, now, now I, now I experience just the smallest fragment of that. When I ask someone, what would change your mind? And they say A, B, and C. And I'm like, here's A through Q if you want them. And they're like, yeah, I don't think any of that's true. Uh, uh, oh, okay. Uh, oh, so you so, didn't mean it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's not, a, it's, it's not a rational conversation, right? It's an ideological. So then I come to your book, exactly. right? And, and I, and it is the spectrum of out. I mean, I'm telling you, it was like a light bulb key unlocking a door. And I was like, Oh, right. Like, and that's exactly what I want for people. Because when I read that the first time I was like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> I am about to save so much energy. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And I want, I want for people to have that experience, you know, especially black and brown people, you know, people of color. Right. Kids, but I especially want that for people, for folks who are arguing with white people, you know, who may have a commitment to white supremacy that they don't even know about. Right. And I apologize for what I'm about to do because I don't expect you to have all the statistics off the top of your head, but yeah. you, I, I didn't highlight it or maybe I did and I can't find it offhand, but, uh, we, it doesn't require a majority to to create social change, right? Do you remember it was like an, okay, a crazy now. small amount of people that it takes to actually affect real social change? Yeah, so there was a massive study by sociologists Maria J. Stephan and Erica Chenoweth that studied 323 conflict situations over throughout history and around the globe in which there were armed struggles and nonviolent struggles. And what they found was that no regime in that study was able to withstand the sustained, active, nonviolent resistance of 3.5% of the population. Wow. That, so this is the thing. I mean, like, uh, we are we operate under these all of these yeah. lies, and that's why I wrote this because yeah. what are we what are we told about social change? We have to get everybody on board. Actually, absolutely every absolutely absolutely everybody you right. encounter, you have to evangelize, right? And first off, you can't because some people are in that act. Richard Spencer is out there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. David Duke is out there, mm-hmm. right? T- uh, Tucker Carlson is out there. Yeah. You're never going to get those people on your side, right? And you don't have to. Like that's that's that was like liberating for me. Those things together. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's one of those things I'm still trying to unwind and untangle is that is kind of the message I got in church yes, and confused with like loving everyone means convincing everyone and winning everyone over to Christ and realizing are you evangelical what I know (laughs) it's weird yes but you know I also am thankful because every time I learn a little more about the white evangelical space I'm like I have never heard of this so Mm. I'm a little out of that And yet I still got this message. And so I'm still trying to kind of untangle all of this while I can love folks. I do not, I am not responsible for their change. Um, And I don't need to win them over with my winsome (laughs) delivery of convictions. Um, So that is, it is freeing, but that's not the message no, Folks we're not get. giving we're not giving that message, and that's why I wrote this this book saying yeah. like we we've, we've been preoccupied with strategies for social change that are first off not based in any fact mm-hmm. or reality whatsoever, right? It's just based in public sentiment, you know, misguided public sentiment at that, 
right? And they won't work. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about relentless hope, I mean, you know that you know that Mahatma Gandhi wrote a letter to Hitler. Oh, I didn't know. No. So Gandhi wrote Hitler a letter, and he's basically <gasps> like, he's basically like, hey man, what you're doing's not cool. <laughs> you can do better than that, buddy. Stop it. I mean, like, obviously, Did it work? I didn't just respond. But, you know, it's basically like that. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. How'd that turn out? Not, yeah. you know but, bas- but basically, like, this is kind of like, I mean, obviously, no, most people don't know about that story. But I bring it up to say that, like, I feel like there is this common sentiment, like, that that's how change is made. Right? In mm-hmm. fact... There's another story that's more popular, right? There's a there's a black guy, I can't remember his name, but he has befriended Ku Klux Klan members yes. and walked them out of the Klan, right? And then I see white people reposting this story online saying, this is how change is made. Okay, well, first off, you who have never lifted a finger to fight against, to fight against <laughs> racism, right? You don't know, oh my gosh, I almost used the adult words there. You don't know. <laughs> what it takes because you're not an expert, right? Like you haven't done it, you haven't, you don't have any experience, you haven't been studying it, but there's this popular notion that that's what has to be done. And it has to be done by oppressed people. That, yeah. that oppressed people have to go and convert their oppressors to something else. And listen, if you want to go and befriend clans members and to get them to take their robes off, listen, if you're black, more power to you. You know what I'm saying? If that's what you want to do, that's your prerogative. I'm not your mama. I can't tell you what to do. However, that's not the way change is made. No. <laughs> you know, no. not, not on a mass scale, not on a... Right? Not on a systemic level. One-on-one? How many? How long? (laughs) Wait, One-on-one with the worst offenders, right? Like, you have to go find the worst offenders and convince them to do otherwise. No, you were telling us that we have to put ourselves in danger, you know? And this is why Malcolm X was saying, like, this is, I mean, this is part of Malcolm X's issue with Dr. King, at least earlier on, is that, like, Calling black people to nonviolence is only uh, making them easier targets, which that is a logical argument. But one thing that uh, that Brother Malcolm says that is, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. He says, why don't why don't why don't you teach white people to be nonviolent? Yeah, right. Right. Teach white people to be nonviolent. And so, like, for, for this particular, you know, misconception that the way that we break this is by black people or uh, people of color or indigenous people inviting, you know, uh, their oppressors to the table to convince them mm-hmm. is like, no, like, why don't white people go into clan, clan meetings and try to get those clan people out yeah. of their room? So I want to go back to the Spectrum of Allies real quick just to say one thing. Like when we're talking about those those different wedges, that passive opposer space where people are not a part of the clan, but they basically like believe the same stuff, you know, (laughs) or you know, they're not a part of the clan, but they definitely don't want to join the movement and think the movement should be happening. Like I think Okay, first off, what you need to know is that that wedge, they're hard to move, but the gains there are very high. Like it's it's like, you know, it's like pulling a tooth that isn't ready. I don't know why you want, why you would want to do that, but it was like a close analogy, um, you know. But but if you get someone who used to watch, watch Tucker Carlson every day to start saying like, no, we need to defund the police, like that's a powerful yeah. testimony, right? Mm-hmm. But white people should be trying to move those people. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, like, I don't want for white people to read my book and then, like, they feel empowered to brush off 
passive opposers the same way that I do. Yes. Because I'm not just brushing them off. I'm, I'm, I'm saving, I'm setting a boundary so I don't re-traumatize myself. Yeah, you're trying to live. Exactly. But, but white people should be trying to move those harder to move people, you know? Yes, because they will still live. Don't go after Richard Spencer, <laughs> you know? Don't go after Richard Spencer, but you do maybe need to talk to drunk uncle at Thanksgiving. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Right? Yep. <laughs> but see, that, yes, even that absolutely. was generous. You're assuming he's drunk. That's really kind of you. <laughs> um, well, hey, we are we are running out of time, but I there was a couple things I really, really, really wanted to make sure we ended with. I spent um, too much time talking about Billy Joel, didn't I? Oh my no, God. Andre, Billy. we will nope. happily have you on for three hours. It's fine. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> uh, we just want to honor your time, uh, and we've kept you so long already. But a couple of final questions, and this is for Andre and Kathy. Um, so in the chapter on black love, you talk about the importance for black persons to be in deep relationships with black partners and friends. Um, and Kathy, I know we've talked about on the show several times, the BIWOC yoga space that you create for black and indigenous women of color. So I wonder if, if I could ask both of you a little bit about your path to discovering how important that space is. Cause you know, again, in the book, Andre, you do such a good job of explaining it. But I know neither one of you, like, you know, was born knowing, like, oh, this is the best, healthiest space for, you know, both of you yeah. grew up with a lot of white, white supremacist uh, assumptions embedded in the cultures you grew up in. And that was a, yeah. it seems like a realization both of you had to come to. And so I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about your paths to finding those spaces and how valuable they are. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I write about it in that chapter that, like, you know, growing up to think that you want to be around people of the same background as you is kind of viewed as racist or reverse racism, right? Like, this is the only times when this, you know, for the most part, white people can't see color until you start talking about being around other black people. Right? <laughs> so all, of, all of a sudden, why are Wait, all I, these Negroes? Why are all these I'm Negroes not allowed in? Exactly. Yeah, what? what? Exactly. Exactly. Why are all these Negroes congregating? I thought that was illegal. It was. Um, so, um, you know, I never thought about it as being important. And also, like, growing up in the, you know, with colorblindness rhetoric and all that kind of stuff. But when I started really waking up, you know, through this process that I'm writing, that I wrote about in the book, you know, I just found myself being really annoyed with non-Black people, you know, because I'm like, gosh, the microaggressions are everywhere and I started thinking, oh, also I read about uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and how when they did the Freedom Summer Project in 1964, the white civil rights activists showed up with their sense of white superiority, paternalism, sexual fetishes, all this you know racist stuff inside of them that needed to be you know looked at, but they're in the movement so they're not doing that internal work. And that was part of what started radicalizing black activists during the civil rights era to start moving toward you know a, a more separatist vision of black liberation because before it was student student nonviolent coordinating can be crossing their arms and singing you know black and white together we shall not be moved you know but um because of their experience with even white liberal racism they started moving away so i'm looking at it like okay my own frustrations are being confirmed by history i think that i should find a black partner and i that started becoming important to me uh, to do intentionally. And then I actually had that experience of being with someone that, that I write about in the book. She's really great. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. Like it was just because the thing that we didn't do any or that I didn't find myself not having to do anymore was, you know, correcting microaggressions or trying to, you know, explain why something was, you know, problematic or racially insensitive. Like we just we understood we understood each other on a certain level to where like we could focus on other things. You know, so I mean I can't like I, I have to be careful with this because even when I wrote the proposal, like my editor who was working on the proposal, a white guy was like, I don't think this chapter needs to be in the book. And I'm like, well, you haven't talked to many black people because yeah. we can't talk about black liberation without talking about who we partner with. And you see a lot with like black male activists often don't partner with black women, you know? And so this is a very important topic for black people. Mm. So I say that to say, not to say that like all black people have to find black partners, you know, it's more complicated, it's more complex than that. No shade to inter interracial relationships and all that kind of stuff. But like I said in the chapter, you know, like if you find black love, keep it, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. um, all, also because it's the foundation of everything, right? Like the, the, the end to which the movement is aimed, right? Is to create a is to create a world where Black people have experienced love like we never have before. Amen. Um. So the yoga space came out of the uh, baby racial reckoning of 2020, and I was watching so many Black women and women of color. Um, organizing and out on the streets and in their churches and communities. And I saw something that was unsustainable physically for them and wondering if we might just want to get together for some time virtually because we were still in a pandemic and all that kind of stuff happening in the world. Um, and I, I know it just because... The, that particular space of yoga is very white and it is very privileged. So even becoming a yoga teacher made me wrestle with the financial privilege I have to get certified and be able to teach the access to all of that. Um, but what could I do to create a space, especially in a time when so much was going virtual anyway? And, um, and what I found and I continue to find is even as, you know, the world is opening up and people are going to places and you don't have to wear a mask if you don't want to and all of that kind of stuff that people keep showing up, women of color keep showing up and mm -hmm. have asked mm -hmm. to have this space maintained in part because um, it's one of the few places where we're, uh, we can address what's going on in the world and then um, connect that to our bodies. And I think I realized the importance of that because for us as women of color, um, there is the danger and there have been moments where there is the like, oh, somebody said something and that was really ableist. <laughs> I hate like, oh, and, and needing to kind of circle back. But what we also found was that as women, there were very few spaces where we could exist without the gaze of the patriarchy and misogyny. And um, and as women of color, we could learn with one another um, and learn for one another. And so I learned, you know, I, I think 
I continue to wrestle with like, how long is this sustainable or do folks still need this? And I had um, somebody who comes to class um, saying that she had never thought about figuring out um, the indigenous people on whose land she was living on. But that is something that I invite every attendee to do and to acknowledge that. And because it's in every email and I address it at every class, she was like, I will never forget that. No matter where I'm going, I look it up now. Um, and I and so I think, again, it's not this huge swing, right? And it, again, it's a group of women of color, but we are realizing even in this space where we don't have to fight the external world, then we are much more willing to learn with one another and for one another. Um, and so I've had, I've had non women of non women, non women of white women. Yes. That's I'm like, what do I call white women, <laughs> white women and men ask if I would hold class. And I've said, no. Yeah. You've had a couple um, sneak it, in too, haven't you? I've yeah, I've had it. Uh, it was early on. There was a white woman who snuck in, kept her camera off, which is an option um, because I want it to be a space that people feel comfortable in. Um, and I found out later, and I was like, "Wait, you knew it was for right. women of color, and so right. you intentionally left your camera off and did not speak, and right. then you came back, and you want to be patted on the back for apologizing." I don't, so even in those spaces, I think I'm I'm a little leery. But but again, I think it is the as women of color, we've also learned we have been taught to distrust one another. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was continues to be important in this time to find ways to build trust with people who are willing to earn it. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Kathy. Um, Andre, one last question. Well, plus maybe what another thing that's fascinating you, we'll give you space for that too. Um, You, you've been uh, clear. You've been insistent that your participation in the struggle for racial justice won't kill you. Uh, yeah, which is, um, it's a good goal for all of us. Right. Um, how, how are you finding joy and hope in the midst of this work you're doing? Oh, music. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There you you go. Like I, I came across a video a couple of days ago or this week. Uh, and it was me in 2016 speaking at APU. Uh, it was a Pacific University, and I was the clip. The clip just caught the very first part of my talk, which is me singing. Which I always make it a point when I'm asked to speak somewhere to sing first, mm-hmm. right? Because that was how I got into this work, mm-hmm. and I never want anyone to forget it, right? Because I don't want people to turn me into just a talking head. And I saw that, and I saw myself. A bit thinner, 20s Andre, thinner than 30s Andre, uh, a bit thinner, in my leather jacket, singing with the boulder with me. And I went, I miss that guy because mm. there's, a, there's something about that guy that really understood that he was an artist first. Mm. 
right? Mm. And in doing the work, I kind of forgot because I let the other common misconception that if millions of people aren't buying your art, then you're not really an artist, get to me. And I said, you know, well, you know, people are really just more into it when I just write about racism. So I think I'll do that. And then it almost killed me (laughs) because Mm. dealing with, because when I wrote How Long and I wrote Playing Hooky and all those things, I was doing the same thing. I was carrying that boulder around, you know? And it was so cathartic to write, you know, uh, this could not be the truth. This shit is not good news. If it's gonna be that way, I don't think I'll go to church this Sunday. I'm trying to keep it real. You know, just that was cathartic for me. And so I know I'm taking a long time with this one. It shouldn't take this long, but I just have to say, like, I have, I want to tell two stories. My friend Mike told me the other day that people like me who get into this work because they have good intentions and they want to just get this message out, they have two timers over their heads. The first timer is until their next breakdown. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. And I have had several, Uh (laughs) you know, I've had several moments where I'm just like, you know, all the things that go through your head, you know, Kathy, like, okay, this doesn't seem to be making a difference. You know, it seems like it's getting worse, blah, 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 all that stuff, right? The second timer over their head is when they just stop doing this work altogether, when they just leave public life. Mm -hmm. And I have felt that, you know, I have felt that often. In fact, I'm just coming out of one, (laughs) you know, uh, right right now. Okay, so that's, that's the one thing that I wanted to say. Uh, the second the second thing that I wanted to say about this is I did promise myself that I won't die like Dr. King. And, not, and by that, I don't just mean being shot. I mean that, I mean, I have no control over that. You know, someone might shoot me, right. but um, God forbid. Um, but he died at 39 with the heart of a 60-year-old mm. because of all of this stress that was on him. And there are some accounts of like hearing him in his room in the last years of his life crying through the, they can hear him through the walls crying saying, I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to go back to my little church. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And I have felt that way. Oh my gosh. I write about fleeing to Jamaica because I was expecting a coup in America um, before the 2020 election. And in Jamaica, I was with my friend Tina and I kept saying to her somewhat facetiously, I quit. I'm tired. I ain't talking about racism no more. <laughs> so anyway I have been finding joy in reclaiming uh, the way that I the the person that I've always known myself to be and snatching him back from the thousands of people who want to think of me as someone else Hmm. you know and that is I got into this when I wrote a song. Well, I, I didn't. I didn't get into it when I wrote. It, but I, when I wrote that song, it's called "It Doesn't Have to Be This Way." I sat back at the piano and said, "That is everything I want to say in one sentence." And <laughs> even though I don't think the song is like the best song I've ever written, I knew that that was my life's message. And I knew that's what I wanted to deliver. 
and um, I'm allowing myself to just make music again, you know, because I love it, you know, not not even just to bring the message, but I'm allowing myself to write about all kinds of things. And so I'll, I'll finish with the, with this. The stress of this work over the past, I'm counting, <laughs> eight years? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The stress of this eight years of trying, of not just trying, but, you know, trying to organize and get the message out and all of that really just had me over the past six months just, like, listening to really big, happy pop songs, like happy hits playlists on Spotify <laughs> just because I'm like, you know, because I, I mean, I've read too much. I look outside and I see the world is a slave ship and sometimes I want to jump off and mm-hmm. I'm like listening to these like big pop songs and major keys. And I started writing some myself. And um, that is what is bringing me joy. You know, it's just really making that music. <laughs> awesome until billy joel ruined it oh my god <laughs> um, andre thank you so much for being back with us it uh gosh it's just so good i just love sitting under you and under your teaching and hearing you talk and reading your book and i mean it's just it's just an incredible privilege so thank you oh, it's my pleasure thanks for having me it's so good to see you all um where where do you point folks to these days if they want to follow what you're doing online I point them to my website. It's like, you know, that is HQ in a sense, you know, like you can connect to anything that I'm doing from there. It's AndreHenry.co. My mailing list is there. Uh, Right now we send out a message once a month um, and it contains updates about what I'm working on. Uh, You know, right now a lot of, you know, updates have been about the book, but when I have new music or the new podcast episodes or anything like that, it's coming out on my English, come straight to your email inbox. You can connect to all my social media there too. Excellent. Well, we'd like to invite you to participate in one last uh, ritual with us. We all like to share something we're, we're fascinated by this week. It can be anything anything you want. You've already shared like 10 with us, so, so I don't feel obligated. <laughs> if, you, if you'd like to, we'll let you go last to give you some time to think. Uh, sure. So, so Matt, what is that? What's fascinating you this week? Uh, you know, I wanted to share. I was just telling a friend of mine about this book earlier this week. It's uh, by a guy named Percival Everett, who's a professor at USC. He used to be a professor at uh, UC Riverside, which is where I went, and he was my professor. Amazing writer, uh, just brilliant guy. Uh, the book is called Wounded, and it's about a uh, black man in contemporary Wyoming who's a horse trainer. He's one of the only black guys in town and definitely the only black um, horse trainer. And he's dealing with various things in town. Uh, But then a young gay man is killed in the town and it just roils up everything going up under the surface in the town. And it is a beautiful novel that kind of takes a hard look at what a Western looks like in America today. Um, And it was profoundly affecting to me emotionally when I read it. Um, yeah, it's Wounded by Percival Everett. Check it out if you haven't read it. Kathy, what about you? Oh, there are so many to choose from. Um, <laughs> I will say, um, I'm going to say my pick this week is the Disney movie Turning Red. 
Oh yeah, we watched that this week. I can't. Too. Yeah, we can't watched it, it over the weekend. I don't know. My days are all kind of blurring together, and um, I'm gonna have to watch it again because some of it hit so hard that I just was like, oh, I can't go there right now. <laughs> oh, no. yeah. um, around parents yeah. and um, puberty mm-hmm. and teenage girl life. And and <laughs> then, of course, of course, there had to be um, an expert white man who mm. is a critic, I guess. I don't know, wrote a piece about how he couldn't relate to this movie and so it was no good. For a narrow audience. And, yeah, for a narrow audience, maybe because he's not an Asian-American teenage girl in Toronto. And, you know, my gut reaction, and I, I had posted it along with our link to our most recent episode, which is like, you know, that's why there are so many folks around Batman, the Batman movie. Clearly... Right, uh-huh. Matt, you and Jr. can totally relate to that because you run around. Uh, yeah, I haven't been a millionaire orphan. Black tights, uh, yeah. fighting billionaires. Right. I mean, I was only a who like but. dresses up as a bat and wears like dark eyeshadow. Jr. And um, but Jr. does ride a motorcycle, and he has yes. dressed as a bat. So okay, so there. So maybe you are the one person I can say who could totally relate to the Batman. They made it specifically for me. For you, right? And so that means. That means this is like the one movie I can probably relate to ever because, well, maybe aside from Joy Luck Club from however many decades ago. Um, but I really appreciated it because I just think it captured things around like um, friendship and like girl friendship mm-hmm. and the like coming together and what that looks like. And, um, and this sense of like deep love for your parents and your ancestors, even though they do things that will send you to therapy. Um, so I, I'm appreciating the conversations that are coming out of uh, Turning Red. And again, it's like, well, why didn't this Disney movie come out 20, yeah. 30 uh-huh. years ago when it would have made such an impact in my life, but so grateful that it's out now for the families who are enjoying it. So like we saw it with Elias, who also enjoyed it. But, you know, Elias is a 20-year-old Asian-American college student. So like how he, he just couldn't relate at all, right? Yeah, yeah. he <laughs> couldn't relate at all. But there were moments where he was like, oh, and I was like, yeah, that that that's your grandmother. On either side, <laughs> like I don't, I don't Amazing. know what to tell you. <laughs> so yeah, so I loved it. Turning red. I can't wait to watch it. I haven't gotten to see it yet, but I'm very excited. So uh, I want to recommend a movie this week that I watched on a whim and had a lot of fun with. It's called Fresh. It's on Hulu. It stars one Sebastian Stan of a Winter Soldier fame. He is the Winter Soldier in the MCU. Also, Tommy Lee, if anyone watched. I heard people watched the Pamela and Tommy Lee thing, so whatever. Um, But this is a movie about contemporary dating, and that's all I'll say about it, because it takes... It takes a... uh, It takes a very specific turn into Act 2, where all of a sudden it is something different, and it was a delightful surprise. I feel real nervous now. I am nervous because of JR's kind of laughter right now. I'm like, right. uh, yeah. what 
what made this turn so wonderful. But okay, <laughs> yeah. I'm all about so, watching modern dating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Andre, what about you? Any more, any more uh, excellent recommendations? Well, what's fascinating right now, I don't know if it's a recommendation, unless the recommendation is go outside. Um, but uh, the, the moon is fascinating to me nice. because uh, I walked out this morning. I, I get up really early in the morning and uh, the moon was full. Yes. It was so big, you know, and I'm just looking at it. I've always liked the moon. But yesterday, no, this morning I was like, man, gosh, it's so beautiful. And I said, you know, I can understand why people worship that thing, you know, mm. at one point, you know, because like, it's so big, it's taking care of us, it's guiding us, you know, giving us light through the night. I'm, I'm, and it got me thinking about like, what are, what are the things that white supremacy can't take from me, right? Mm. Because I was like, you know, stuff is messed up in the world, but they can't stop me from like appreciating the moon. And then <laughs> I was like, they did try though. Yeah. <laughs> they did. They did try, Working on you know, yeah. with telling us we have to worship white Jesus and we can't yeah, have a have a relationship with nature in that way anymore. But yeah, that's what is uh, fascinating <laughs> to me right now. Awesome. Yeah. All right, friends. Well, this has been episode number three eighteen. Our guest has been the incomparable Andre Henry. His new book, All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep, is available. If you're listening to this day the episode drops, you still have a chance to pre-order it for one day. After that, you'll just have to buy the book. But and, and I know some of you are out there and you're like exhausted right now because of all of the amazing content that we discussed. I can promise you on a stack of Andre's books that we only covered like 5% of what's in the book. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> yeah. it is just it is a terrific book. Uh, you'll absolutely want to get it and dive into it. So, Andre, thanks again for being on with us. It's always such an honor. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah. Thanks Thank for having you. Me. Uh, next week is our annual pop culture bracketology show. So start getting those brackets together. Uh, we'll see if Wordle can go all the way or if it will shipwreck on the uh, uh, on the stone of capitalism. I don't know. I lost the metaphor there at the end. So anyway, uh, we'll be back next week with another terrific episode. Until then, take care of yourselves out there. Uh, be kind to each other. And we'll see you next week. Bye.